Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are engaged in a verse-by-verse -verse study of Paul's two epistles to the Corinthians. Now, let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We find ourselves at an interesting juncture on the calendar. For me personally, it's kind of a tough date because it was exactly a year ago that my mother had a massive stroke and we began the process of taking her through hospitals and rehabs and, and she's in a nursing home today. And so this day is kind of rough for me because I know it's been a year. And... But then also, October 31st is a, uh, an important date on the calendar for a couple of reasons, both a secular reason and for religious reasons. All Hallowed's Eve, are you familiar with that? November 1st is All Saints Day. That's All Hallowed's Day. And so it was, uh, by best legend... The night before All Saints Day, the devils and the demons and the ghoulies got a chance to get out there and cause all sorts of havoc. And so according to uh, Celtic religion and Celtic practice, they began hollowing out gourds and putting them in front of their house with a candle inside them to scare off the ghoulies by convincing them they already had a demon in their house. <laughs> because there was already a, a hollowed-out gourd with a candle. And uh, so now, in keeping with that tradition, we just dress up our children to play the parts of devils and demons. I understand that not at all. I, I don't even comprehend that thinking, but they come to your house and do the same thing the demons threaten to do. Give me a treat or I will trick you. Now, because that has all been secularized, we don't think about it anymore. We dress up our kids as Star Wars characters or Mickey Mouse, and we send them out into the streets. But the word Halloween comes to us from the All Hallowed's Evening. In Celtic, that would be All Hallowed's Een. You take the V out. And as a consequence, it's been shortened here in America and most of the Western world today to the Hallowed Een. So that's the Halloween thing. I don't do Halloween anymore because my kids are grown and there aren't many kids in my neighborhood that go around trick-or-treating anymore, so I'll turn off the lights and sit in my dark living room and, and just hunker down for the night. And if anybody rings my doorbell, I'll just yell, no candy, and they'll run. So it'll... Bah humbug. That's... <laughs> now also... The 31st of October, 1517, is the date that Martin Luther first nailed his 95 Thesis to the door at Wittenberg. And there is a whole lot of history that belongs to that event, but that is typically marked as the beginning of the Protestant, the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther originally decided to uh, try to reform the church from within, but the reason there had to be a reformation was that the Catholic Church for a thousand years had kind of held sway and held dominance in Europe, 
And Martin Luther was actually trying to get the church to see the error of its ways and repair its theology and its thinking. He actually thought that if he went to Rome and that if he argued with the church leadership that they would at some point say, oh, I see, I understand, Martin, how could we have been so foolish? We've wandered way off track. And instead, they uh, demanded his recantation because over the course of the three years following 1517 until 1520, Martin Luther wrote three books in which he showed the errors of the Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church had essentially decided that salvation was a result of works, effort, and that if humans were just good enough, devoted enough, did enough Hail Marys, went to enough Masses, took the uh, Lord's Supper frequently enough, that God was going to accept them on the basis of their own personal earned righteousness. In fact, they even changed the language of grace. This morning we sang about grace. And when we say grace, we mean something very different than the Roman Catholic Church means. The Roman Catholic definition of grace is that God gives you graciously the ability so that you personally can then be good enough that he will accept you. So that is not at all what grace means. We still use the word grace in a lot of different contexts, the Greek and the Latin Words for grace have moved down into our language for the word gratuity. Do you know that word? If you leave a tip when you're served, that was a gratuity. We say gratuitous. And what we mean is something that has no initial inspiration other than it's a good thing, a right thing, a generous thing to do. And that's what grace essentially is. God is kind to people for no other reason than he is good. And he is kind and he is loving and he has chosen some people and he has set his grace upon them. He does not infuse them with the ability to suddenly magically be better than they initially were. Yes, Paul's theology says that good works follow God's grace, but never does he infuse people with the ability to be good people so that he can accept them on the basis of their earned merit. And that's a big theological difference. And so Martin Luther was trying to get the Roman Catholic Church to change their thinking where the subject of salvation was concerned. They did not take well to that. He was uh, commanded to appear at a church council that is known as the Diet of Worms. It's spelled W-O-R-M-S, which sounds like the Diet of Worms, which to me sounds like the title of a heavy metal album. But the Diet of Worms was a council that was convened by Charles V, and he demanded not only that Martin Luther would show up there, but that he guaranteed him safe passage to and from. And during that, they expected Luther to recant for him to change his mind, say that his books were wrong, say that the things he had written were wrong, and the things he had written were saying that the Roman Catholic hierarchy had gotten it wrong, and that the Bible was the word of God and it was right, and that it was directly opposed to the things that were being taught widely and broadly through the Roman Catholic dominance. So 
Luther stood before the council and he made a large impassioned speech where he explained why he believed the things he believed. And, and it was a great speech. It was a point-by-point -point speech. And I think next year, since it will be the 500th anniversary of October 31st, 1517, I will probably read the whole speech. I'll just stand here and say what Luther said. But we've got another year to wait for that. But I'm going to give you this morning his closing paragraph because people know it well. And it is the, the speech that he, that he made before both the emperor and the council in order to say, unless the word of God and his conscience convicted him otherwise, he had to stand on the word of God and what it said. And that, of course, is our stance to this very day. Here's what Luther said to the council. He said, since your most serene majesty and your high mightinesses require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one. And it is, I cannot submit my faith either to the pope or to the council because it is as clear as noonday that they have fallen into error and even into glaring inconsistency with themselves. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection into God's word, then I neither can nor will retract anything, for it cannot be right for a Christian to speak against his country. Here I stand. I can do no more. God help me. Amen. And so the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, was essentially born on that idea. We are going to stand by the word of God. We are not going to compromise the word of God. And our Christianity is going to be based in the word of God. From the Protestant Reformation, we also got the five short solas, which we have been looking at in men's group, and which Tom, two Wednesdays ago, did a, a good job of teaching a sola scriptura. But there were five solas that were part of the Protestant Reformation that kind of summarized the difference between the Protestants and the Catholic Church. And those solas are that it is by Christ alone, and it is by faith alone, and it is through Scripture alone, and it is ultimately by grace alone, to God's glory alone. And that's still what we believe to this very day. That's what we preach to this very day. And most people who occupy pews in most churches don't know why they are Protestants. I say all the time, if you're a Protestant today and not a Catholic, thank a Calvinist. Because it is the Reformed doctrine, the Calvinistic doctrine, that's the nickname it was given. That is the doctrine of the Reformation. And over the last 500 years, churches have wandered away from that doctrine. And they have wandered away from God's sovereignty in all things. And they have wandered away from the ideas of God's electing grace or God's predestinary will. And instead they have 
formulated the theology of man's supremacy and man's free will and man's right to choose and man's sovereignty in all things. So they have forgotten why they are Protestants and they have gone back to the theology that Martin Luther was originally arguing against. But here at GCA, we stand firmly on the Protestant theology and the Protestant Reformation. So now you have something to look forward to next year when we will read Martin Luther's speech. If I'm still standing and know my own name, and if I can't do it, then Thaddeus will. And I say that because when I said Martin Luther, Thaddeus went, yeah. And uh, that's the kind of reaction we're looking for. We don't say amen here at GCA. We say, yeah. So turn to 1 Corinthians 10. We got to the end of 1 Corinthians 9 last week. And actually, we're going to back up just a couple of verses because there have been people who have emailed me and even some folks here present who have asked about the phrase that closes chapter 9. Now, let me also just kind of, again, contextually give us some idea what's going on here. Um, You know, do you not, that chapters and verses were not any part of the original books that were written in the Bible. There has only been versification of the Bible for the last about 500 years, which means that for 1,500 years prior to that, when Christians read the New Testament, they read them the way they were supposed to be read, like letters that were written to the church. And if they divided it at all, they divided it into paragraphs. The original numbering system in the Bible numbered paragraphs, large ideas, and then eventually versification came along. I understand the value of versification. Numbering the verses allows us all to get to the same place at the same time. I just said, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but we're going to look at chapter 9, verse 27 before that, and you all know right where I'm talking. You know, I grew up a musician. When I played in the symphony and when I played in large jazz bands, all of the measures were numbered. Right, Danielle? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's the right answer right there. (laughs) All of the measures are numbered so that if you've got 90, 100 people in a symphony and you want them all to play at the same beginning point, you just tell them which measure you're starting at. Measure number 103, start here. And that's how you get everybody to the same place at the same time. And that was the purpose behind versification in the Bible, so that you could mention a particular verse and everybody could get there at the same time. However, having stated the positive attributes of versification, it has had the very negative effect of allowing people to start thinking that individual verses stand by themselves and kind of tell the whole story. How many people have you met who, when competing with what we believe, when saying that what we believe about election or predestination or God's sovereignty or any of those things, they'll answer back, well, John 3.16. And they think John 3.16 undermines everything that we believe because that one verse taken out of its context and misread 
seems to give them some ammunition because they've begun thinking that every individual verse stands by itself, which it does not. Every verse in the Bible has context. And what I mean by context is not only the surrounding language of the paragraph in which you find that verse, but then the larger book, the whole book that Paul or any of the apostles wrote in order to make their argument. You have to follow their continual argumentation to understand what any one sentence means. And then in the larger context, I mean the whole biblical context, because all the Bible tells one story. And then you have to look at the historic context. And so there's lots of context that you have to take into account when you read any verse of the Bible. And that takes us to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, because at the end of that verse, Paul says, I buffet my body and I make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway or should be disqualified. And that has caused people to say, see, pulling that verse out of context, and say, see, you can lose your salvation, and Paul admitted it. Except that if you look at the context, the context has nothing to do with how people are saved. The context, the argument building up to that statement has to do with Paul buffeting his own body that he runs the way an athlete runs so that he can win. We looked at it last week, that in an Olympic event, like running the, the 500, that everybody at the starting line, they all run. Everybody runs, but he says, I run like someone who's trying to win. I don't want to just run. I want to get the wreath. I want the Stephanos. I want to be recognized as the winner in this race. So he's running this Christian race in such a way that he is holding down his body. He has already argued that he didn't take any remuneration from the Corinthians so that the gospel could go forward freely and none of them could say that he was in it for the money. He even said that it's easier for him to be single rather than taking along a believing wife so that he could devote himself to the things of God and the things of Christ. He's talking about the many sacrifices he has made in order to preach the gospel in Corinth. And it's in that context, in that idea of I race hard, I buffet my body, I make my body servant to Christ. It's in that context that he can say, I do it in this manner, this way. I do it like one who doesn't want to be a castaway. I do it like one who doesn't want to be disqualified. If I ran and preached to others and then ended up disqualified, that would upset all Pauline theology. It would be the absolute opposite of his grand treatise in Ephesians 1 or everything he wrote in Romans 8. He'd actually be schizophrenic. We'd have to admit that Paul doesn't know what he's talking about because he's already said that salvation is a once-for-all done deal in Christ 
and that God has chosen people since before the foundation of the world and secured them by the sacrifice of Christ and the infilling of the Holy Spirit, which seals them for their full redemption, and oh yeah, you can lose your salvation. Well, that's schizophrenic. That makes no sense. And so Paul can't be saying that, and what he is saying, again, contextually, is I do all of this because I'm trying to win, and my attitude is I buffet my body so that after preaching to others, I won't be a castaway. Not because he thinks he could be a castaway, but because that's the attitude he takes in the way he preaches and advances the gospel. Does that make sense? He's talking about attitude. He's talking about a mindset that he carries around with him. He is not talking about how people get saved because that's not the context. Nowhere in here do you find Paul talking about how people get saved or lost. That's not the context. The context is everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we do it to gain an imperishable prize. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. That's a mindset. So Paul is not laying out the theology of people being saved and lost, saved and lost. That's an Arminian idea that you don't find anywhere in the Bible. And for those people who have written to me this week and tried to use that as a proof text that you really can lose your salvation, I hope that you understand it now in context. And let me say just as clearly as I can Paul is not schizophrenic. He does not say something opposite than what he said earlier. And we are consistent in our theology. So, hey, back off me, man. Uh, I think you understand. Now, all of that was introduction. introduction. That's right. We are finally to chapter 10, verse 1. Now, chapter 10 is just chock full of Old Testament references. Paul is at this point going to talk about things that happened to national Israel. And he says these things happened to our fathers, to our progenitors. So this is, again, evidence that Corinth was not a strictly Gentile church. It was a church that was Jewish and Gentile, as we've said many times. And Paul does make many, many references to the Old Testament and to Old Testament feasts because his listening audience is Jewish and Gentile. So he's going to do it again, and some of the language he uses here sounds very foreign to our 21st century Gentile minds, which means we're going to have to go back and look at the Old Testament to understand what his original audience understood. The church he was writing to understood these things so he could speak to them in shorthand. But we're going to have to take the time to really dig into each one of these statements to understand it. Betty, was it you or was it Karen who said, I'm anxious for you to get to chapter 10? Because it is a verse that leaves people 
thinking, wondering. For I do not want you to be unaware. The King James says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to not understand these things. Well, what are the things that Paul's talking about? He's going to say these things, the Old Testament, these events that happened to Israel. He says these things are written for us, for our learning, for our admonition. How many times have you heard me talk about the fact that the Old Testament is written about Israel, but it's for us? And I've made that difference, that distinction, time and time again, because you can easily get confused if you start thinking that the Old Testament is about us. And it's not about us. It's about Israel. And Paul's going to say so again. It's about Israel, but it's for us. We can learn the lessons of the Old Testament. We can learn what God is like. We can see his faithfulness to his chosen people. We can develop a theology, as Paul does, off the <coughs> Old Testament lessons and stories, but it's not about us. It's about Israel. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, early Israelites, were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Okay, so he's talking about the exodus out of Egypt. He's talking about how God delivered Israel after 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He delivered Israel out with a mighty hand and he took them through the Red Sea and he led them by a pillar of cloud that stood between them and the Egyptian army. That's a, a portion of the Red Sea escape that you just don't see in movies. Cecil B. DeMille missed it completely. All of these Bible movies miss it completely, but what you read about in Exodus was that God formed a cloud that had a lighted side and a dark side, and the dark side was toward the Egyptian army keeping them in the dark while lighting the way through the Red Sea in the night for the Israelites. Okay, well, this had to be absolutely terrifying and awesome. And then the cloud lifts and moves so that the Egyptians can go into the Red Sea after the Israelites have all passed through. And we're talking about a million-plus people. So that had to have taken some time. So God intervened in order to keep the army back and to allow his people through. And then for the rest of Israel's journey, their 40-year journey through the wilderness, during that time they were led by that pillar of cloud. When the pillar of cloud rested, they set up camp. When the cloud moved, they moved. God was leading his people every year, once a year at the Feast of Atonement, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, dressed in the garb that he could only wear on the Day of Atonement, with ox blood and lamb's blood and the sprinkling of blood in the Holy of Holies, if God accepted that sacrifice, the pillar would rest between the angel wings on the capareth on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So this cloud is very, very important. Paul knows that. So Paul references the cloud. 
And he also talks about how they went through the Red Sea, and then he said they were baptized into Moses. In English letters, the Greek word looks like that. It was not translated in your translations. It just moved into the English language essentially unchanged. Baptizo is the word that is translated baptize. So rather than translate it, it was transliterated. Now what it means, and this is very important, what it means is to immerse or to be affiliated with whatever has the influence over you. And you see it throughout the Bible. We just don't think of it that way because when we see the word baptized, those gears in our heads start moving and we start making up spiritual meanings for the word. But all that it ever meant was to be associated with and to be immersed in. And so here Paul uses that word baptizo in that meaning Uh, As you look in the Gospels, you'll see Jesus saying, tell people to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so their baptism is in Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit. This is a baptism in Moses. So it's an affiliation with or to be under the influence of the rules of a particular person. So Paul could rightly say that all of Israel, all the fathers, when they were led by the cloud, think about it again, cloud, uh, cloud's not wet. And so to be baptized by a cloud, in which way can we say that they were immersed by a cloud? And yet Paul uses the language, they're baptized into Moses under the cloud. And they all pass through the sea. Okay, think about that. They all passed on dry ground through the Red Sea. Yes, they went under the water and they came out of the water. As the million people were going through the Red Sea, how many of them got wet? None of them. them. So this can't be a direct reference to the baptism the way we think of baptism is all I'm getting at. What it means is that by the cloud and through the Red Sea, They were all affiliated with, they were all associated with the teaching of Moses. Moses was their leader. Moses is the person who led them for the next 40 years through the wilderness. Moses is the person who they came to, who they grumbled to, who they complained to. Moses was the leader of Israel. We are baptized into Christ because our leader is Christ. And so we are baptized into a different covenant and a different leadership than they were. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, that's what it's driving at. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food. Now, he's going to define what that is and what it's about and how sick they got of it and what God did in response. That's all going to come up here. But he's talking about the manna. For 40 years, they walked in the wilderness, and every day when they got up, there was bread on the ground. Every day, free food. Every day, God fed them, except on the Sabbath, because they were not to work, and they couldn't pick up manna on the Sabbath. 
on Friday before sundown, they were to pick up twice as much food as they did every other day, and the food lasted through the Sabbath so that they'd have something to eat on the seventh day. But if they collected twice as much as normal on Wednesday, when they got up Thursday, the food was full of worms. So they couldn't eat that food, which means we're talking about a food that knew the day of the week. We're talking about a food that was so infused with the glory of God and the grace and the gift of God that depending on the day of the week, the food reacted differently. And yet the children of Israel came to Moses and said, my soul hates this light bread. I'm sick of this. We've tried everything. We fried it. We baked it. We've done everything we can do. We've broken it up. We made sandwiches. We've done everything we know to do. My soul hates this light bread. And God became uh, unhappy with them over their grumbling. Paul's going to bring that up. So they all ate from the same spiritual food, the manna that came down from heaven. And they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock that followed them, which is interesting. Think about it. If you're in the middle of the desert and a rock spills enough water that it creates a stream, a river, so that all of the million people can have water and their animals and their livestock, everybody can drink from it. Are you likely to just leave that rock there? No. No, you're going to take it with you. And that's exactly what the Israelites did. For 40 years in the desert, they carried a rock around with them because they got water from that rock. And then Paul says, and that rock was Christ. Now that has caused, again, all sorts of theological speculation, exegetical chaos, and uh, ideas about, oh, well, here's Christ in the Old Testament. What Paul is doing is he is identifying that rock that, that gave off water with Christ because Christ himself identified himself as the rock, and he also said that he was the source of spiritual water. You want to see it? Turn to the book of John, John 7. You can keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to go look at John 7. Starting at verse 37. John 7:37 says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. After Jesus promised over and over that the Spirit of God was going to be given to his apostles, and that the Spirit of God was going to seal believers for all time, he then went to the cross, went to Calvary, and after his death on Pentecost, the Spirit came. The promise of God came. That's what John's talking about at the end there. But Jesus himself identifies himself as the rock and as the source of living water, water that keeps alive. 
Now turn back to Exodus 17 for a minute. Because there's really much more to the fact that Paul identified the rock with Christ. I think Paul is giving us a clue there to a deep theological mystery. I think he's explaining what Moses did with that rock. Because if it were just a rock, then how Moses treated it wouldn't really matter. But if it is typifying Christ, then how Moses treated the rock mattered, and Moses so messed up his relationship with the rock that he lost the promised land. So you want to see it? Let's look. Let's start at Exodus 17, right at verse 1. This is early on in their travels through the wilderness. God said they were going to wander for 40 years so that everybody over the age of 20 was going to die in the wilderness. Their bones were going to be strewn in the wilderness. Everybody under 20 was going to get into the promised land. So if you were like 19 and 11 months, you were like, yeah. But if you were like 20 and two months, hey, you're going to be strewn in the wilderness. Everybody was going to die because... Because when they came to Mount Sinai and God gave them the law, they were down at the bottom of the mountain celebrating and dancing and building themselves a golden calf, which Aaron said, I don't know how that happened. We just threw all the jewels into the fire and lo came out this calf. We have no idea how that happened, but we'll get to that in just a moment. Starting in Exodus 17, verse 1, all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and they camped at Rephidim and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. Isn't that interesting? I mean, they're all baptized into Moses. Moses is the leader. Moses is the one who took them out into the wilderness. Moses is the one who, following the cloud, has led them into this area of Rephidim, and there's no water. And so now they're grumbling with Moses, give us water. There's a million of them, plus cattle. Like Moses is going to suddenly go, oh, yeah, I was holding out on you. I've got my canteen, and there's enough water for everybody. Don't worry about it. They came and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? But look at the next line. And why do you test the Lord? In other words, if it is God who is leading us, if it is God who is deciding where we are and where we camp, and if he has brought us right here and settled us right here, don't you think he's going to take care of you? Why do you test him? But the people thirsted. For water, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Oh, yeah, that was the grand plan. (laughs) That's what the intention was. God brought all the children of Israel out of Egypt so that he could take them into (laughs) Rephidim and then kill them all with thirst. Yeah, that's that was God's divine plan. No, again. Moses is saying, don't test God. He knows what he's doing. God is capable of providing for you. So Moses cried out to the Lord, to Yahweh, saying, what shall I do to these people? A little more 
and they will stone me. So then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile. The staff's really important. This is Aaron's staff. This is Aaron's staff that budded. And uh, it's the staff that he held out over the Red Sea and the sea parted. This is the staff that he struck the, the Nile with and the Nile became blood. This is the staff that he threw down and it became a snake. This is a, a very important staff. And God says, take that staff, take it in your hand with which you struck the Nile and go, verse 6, and behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you will strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And so he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel among the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so they put the Lord to the test and the Lord gave them water, life-giving water. They were going to die without it. And God gives them miraculous water from a rock to keep their lives going. And so Jesus would liken himself to that rock and would say that out of him and out of his people was going to come living water and that he spoke of the spirit. So that living water coming out of the rock is a type of the Holy Spirit according to Jesus himself. And so Moses should have recognized that that rock was something special and God told him to strike the rock and then the living water, which is the type of the spirit, would come forward. And that's exactly what John wrote, that after Christ was glorified, after Christ was crucified, then the living water came out. So Christ, the rock, was smitten once. Having been smitten, the living water came forward and the spirit came out to the people, which is the day of Pentecost. Now, go to the book of Numbers. If you're in Exodus, go to Exodus, Leviticus, then Numbers. Because this didn't just happen at the beginning of their 40-year journey. It also happened at the end of their 40-year journey. Now that the vast majority of the over 20s are gone, God is now teaching that younger generation. He's teaching them to trust God to have faith in God, and he does the same thing with them and takes them to a place where there's no water. Now, what are they going to do? They've even got the rock with them. They're carrying the rock around the desert. They've been carrying it for 40 years. What are they going to do now? Are they going to trust God? Are they going to trust God who's given them the bread for 40 years? God who gave them quail when they complained about not having meat? God who has provided for them all the way along for 40 years. Are they going to trust God? Or are they going to let their circumstances determine how they feel about God? Which, by the way, is a good lesson to all of us. I have said frequently that faith is believing that God's word is more true than your circumstances. Because your circumstances will say it's not true. You can't trust God. You can't believe in Christ in the midst of all this. Look, why would he treat you this badly? Why are you going through these difficulties? Clearly, God doesn't care. And so the, the people who look at their circumstances, concentrate on their circumstances, end up being people who 
who test God, best case scenario, or lose faith, worst case scenario. And that's been true ever since all the way back here with the Israelites. Okay, now God has proven himself to you, and he's provided for you, and he's given you bread, and he's kept your enemies away from you, and he's taking you to the land that is promised, the land flowing with milk and honey. Maybe you'll trust him now. Do they do it? Numbers 20. Did I say that? Did I say Numbers 20? I know I said Numbers. Numbers chapter 20. Let's just start in verse 2. There was no water for the congregation, the assembly. So they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. How often do you have to see this? Again they grumble. Again they complain. We're going to see other examples of them grumbling. Again, they're not trusting that God knows what he's doing. He's promised them in a covenant that he made with himself to their forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they're going to receive this land in perpetuity. This land belongs to them. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. It is a land that they're going to have safety from all their enemies, and God's going to drive out the wild animals. And they've got all these promises from God based on an unconditional One-way covenant that God made with Israel. I promise I'm going to do this for you. He gets them right up to the edge of it, and they send in spies. And the spies go in and say, yeah, it's a land of milk and honey. It's just like God said. It's great. It's a great land. We also saw giants. We're not good about going in. And God said, well, then you faithless generation. The only people who said, yeah, we can go are two of the old guys, because old guys still get it done. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm getting at. Joshua and Caleb, they were like, we can do this. So God marches them around for 40 years so that first faithless generation would die away, and the younger generation saw it all, saw what faithlessness got them, saw the water from the rock, got the bread every day, got protection by God from their enemies, and and here they are on the verge of going into that promised land again 40 years later. You would think that they would be willing to trust God. But no, there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. And the people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished When our brothers perished before the Lord. Now they're saying, you know, you had it good if you died in the wilderness. Remember what the first generation said? Oh, my soul longs for the onions, the leeks, the garlics back in Egypt. You know, back when we were slaves. That was good. Those were good days. Because we had something to eat. Well, here they are complaining again. Our brothers who died in the wilderness had it better than us. We're thirsty. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? It's the same complaint. They've learned nothing. Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. Verse 6 Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly of the doorway of the tent of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and then the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, 
and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. Originally, the instruction was smite the rock, but Christ can only be smitten once. So this time, the instruction is speak to the rock. Because after Christ has been smitten and after the Holy Spirit has flowed, you don't have to put Christ back on the cross. Despite what the Catholics would tell you every time they do the Mass, that they are re-sacrificing Christ over and over again as you eat his body and his blood. Despite that theology that Martin Luther said isn't right at all. Despite that theology that we Protestants don't stand for at all. Christ once smitten and the Holy Spirit flowed to get that living water again, you only have to speak to the rock. You don't smite him again. Here's what Moses did. Moses got angry. Moses has a temper. Moses gets upset. Verse 8, So Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. By the way, the rod, after it budded, was set up in the Holy of Holies by the Ark of the Covenant. So that's why it says he took, the, he took the rod from the Lord. So he took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, listen now, you rebels. God didn't say, say that. God said, just go speak to the rock and the water will come forth. But he's angry at the people because the people are grumbling at him and he's had about enough. So now it's here now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Okay, so now Moses is starting to get a little haughty. Instead of God's going to give you water from a rock. What are you demanding of me? You want me to give you water out of the rock? Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock a second time with his rod. And when he did that, he messed up the typology. The typology was strike the rock once, then speak to the rock. And he struck the rock again. So he struck the rock a second time. Water came forth abundantly in the congregation and the beast drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. And those were the waters of Meribah because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them. He did give them water, but it messed up the typology of the Christ that was to come. And for that reason, God didn't allow Moses to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. Now, you want to see sovereignty? You've heard me use this word compatibilism a lot. Sometimes, Oftentimes, okay, let's go with always. God enters into the stream of human history on a constant basis and makes sure that whatever humans do, it leads to his ultimate end. It leads to his determined destination. 
We've seen it time and time and time and time again throughout the Bible. The example that I like to use is when Joseph had his brothers standing before him. That they were fearful because Joseph was second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. And they were fearful since they had put him into a pit and sold him off into slavery and convinced their father that he was dead. They were fearful that now he was going to exact some kind of revenge. They did horrible things to Joseph. And Joseph said to them, you meant it for evil. Okay, that's their, that's their cause. They mean it for evil. He says, but God meant it for good to bring about this present result that many are saved alive. Because Joseph then through his brothers, could provide food so that the family could continue and become the nation of Israel. And so even though the brothers meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Okay, well, that's what I mean when I say compatibilism. Okay, so Moses struck the rock a second time, and he destroyed the typology of Christ, which Paul said, that rock is Christ. He gave us the clue we needed. That rock is Christ. So you can't strike that rock a second time. Moses lost the promised land over that one, but Moses can't lead people into the promised land. Moses is the embodiment of the law at Mount Sinai. And the law at Mount Sinai cannot lead people into the promises of God. So who did lead the children of Israel into the promised land? Joshua. So is it any surprise that the angel would say to Mary, when your baby's born, name him Joshua, God with us, the God who saves is with us? The exact same name of the man who led the children of Israel into the promises of God is the exact same name that was given to the Son of God who leads the people of God into the promises of God. And so here Moses messed up the typology and God used it for good because ultimately Moses can't lead the children of God into the promises of God. All the law can do is curse and condemn you. So that can't be the way that people enter into the promises of God. It has to be through Joshua. Isn't that amazing? Okay, that's all wrapped up in that rock was Christ. Now we begin to get some idea of how Paul viewed that rock theologically and why he saw Moses striking the rock a second time as being a, a destruction of the typology that God was developing and yet God used that very event and Moses' own stubbornness in order to bring about the very theology of Christ as the deliverer. That's a God who knows what he's doing. He does. That's a God who's in charge. And that's a God who is not going to let his word be messed up by anybody. He's still going to bring about all his promises, Amen. all his covenants, all the things that he's promised to the children of God. And nobody, not Steve, not Conrad, I'm just picking people here at random, not Tom, not any human being can mess it up. And Joni's right. Joni says, yeah, because if nobody can mess it up, Joni can't mess it up for Joni. And every once in a while, Joni's going to reach the point of saying, man, I made a mess here. Every once in a while. Every once in a while. 
Joni's got to admit, I messed it up. But it's good to know that you can even mean it for evil, but God can mean it for good. And that he's going to bring about every one of his promises, every one of his covenants. He's going to bring them about because he's in charge of human history no matter what. And that's what Paul said way back at this rock was Christ. You get it? Okay, now, all of his original audience, all the people in Corinth, especially among the Jews at least, who read Paul say that, got what he was getting at. Oh, that rock. What happened with that rock? Oh, I remember the history of that rock. Oh, the flowing water. Oh, oh, getting struck. Oh, getting struck again. Oh, and Moses lost the promised land over it. Oh, that rock was Christ. There's the clue. Back in 1 Corinthians. Even though they all ate from the same spiritual food, even though they all drank the same spiritual drink, verse 5 says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. We know that's true now. The first generation, everybody over 20, were all laid low in the wilderness. Now, why is Paul saying this? Why is Paul even bringing this up? It sounds like harsh news. It sounds like he is saying, be cautious, be careful. But really what he's doing is telling people, look, I run a race like I'm going to win. I buffet my body so that it is slave to me. I am serious about this Christian thing. Now, why am I so serious about it? Well, if I do this thing willingly, I have my reward. Nevertheless, if unwillingly, there is a dispensation of the Bible given to me. Paul says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I'm under the hand of God who has given me an assignment. I have to preach the gospel. And so I do it with all my heart. I do it with all my life. I, every aspect of my life, I train the way someone trains to be in an Olympic event. They train their bodies for their event. I train my body for my event. I am that serious about it. Why? Because let's take a look at the Old Testament again. What's God like? God doesn't like faithlessness. God does not respond well to faithlessness. So I am going to make sure with everything in my being that I am performing the tasks that God has laid in front of me. I will not be a castaway because I'm running like one who can't be a castaway. That's my attitude. That's my mindset. That's my, my goal in life. And so verse 5 says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. They craved the evil stuff, the fleshly stuff, the carnal stuff. We want to go back to Egypt. Or, or we want to be like our brothers that died in the wilderness. Or we just threw our jewelry in the fire and out came this calf and we danced around it. We sang and danced and sat down to eat. Well, that's Paul's next example. These things happened as examples for us 
that we should not crave evil things as they craved, and do not be idolaters. He's writing to the people in Corinth where there was a temple to an idol on every street corner. They were riddled with temples to idols. So now Paul's going to bear down on, do not be idolaters, as some of them, our forefathers, were. Because it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they stood up to play. Now, to his original audience, they would know where that fits in the Old Testament economy. We don't know. Anybody know where that fits? Nobody. See, nobody in the room has any idea where that fits. So let me show you real quickly, and then we'll call it a day. Look at Exodus 32. Exodus 32, 1 to 6. That's what we're going to read. And then we'll pick up right there next week. Exodus 32, 1 to 6. You're getting a good Old Testament overview here on a Sunday morning. Starting at verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down the mountain. Oh, now we know the context. Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the law from God. Do you remember that when Moses came down the first time and he had the tablets of stone that were cut out with God's own finger and then God wrote on those stones and Moses comes down with those stones and when he sees the golden calf and he sees the people in their revelry in his anger again, again, consistent personality profile of Moses, Moses gets so angry at them that he throws down the rocks at them and the rocks break and he has to go back up on the mountain and tell God, you know those rocks you gave me? Uh, I broke, yeah, I broke those. (laughs) I, uh, I don't got those. Yeah. But what was the first version of the Ten Commandments written in stone with the finger of God? It was the very law of God, cut out by God and written by God. And then God changes the rules and tells Moses, you cut out two stones. Suddenly these are stones cut out with a man's hand. And then God wrote his law on the stones that were cut out with a man's hand. And those remained intact and went into the Ark of the Covenant. Because God again was speaking. God again was teaching. The first law, the law of God with no man's intervention, that law was broken. Broken time and time again. But the law that came in Christ, that God wrote his law into a man, that law was kept and kept in a pure gold box. It's different. God's teaching all the time. God is saying all the time, one story over and over again, old covenant, new covenant, law, you can't do it, it can only condemn you. Christ, he saves perfectly. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, by the way, he was up there 40 days, 40 nights. And then Jesus began his ministry by going into the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights, because he's the new lawgiver. I, I got to stop or I'll just, there's so many connections here. So they said to Aaron, come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from Egypt, we do not know what became of him. He's up there on that mountain. He's gone. We have no idea. 
make us a God. Aaron said to them, now by the way, it makes sense that they would make a golden calf. Those were very popular in Egypt. So of course, they're going to go after the, the worship of a golden calf. Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and they brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and he made a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be the feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early, and they offered burnt offerings, and they brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's Paul's quote. So Paul is referring to this time when they made their own God for themselves perfectly in keeping with Paul saying, don't be idolaters. Don't follow idolatry like our fathers did. They made themselves a golden calf and they ate and they drank and they rose up to play. Don't be like that. Because what did God do to them? He took them through the wilderness and he killed them all. God was not pleased with them. Don't be like them. That's Paul's argument. Now let me close with this one last word and we'll pick up right there next week you want to see grace you want to see real grace because sometimes we think well Old Testament you know that's God being harsh and New Testament then you see the grace of God but you see the grace of God all the way through his word it's all the way through the Bible it is Aaron Moses brother chosen by God do you remember how God chose Aaron Again, this is not in the Cecil B. DeMille movies. When God came to Moses and told him to go speak to Pharaoh at the burning bush, Moses argued with God and said, I'm slow of tongue. I can't go talk to Pharaoh. Moses had a speech impediment. Moses may have had a cleft tongue. He may have talked like this. We have no idea. But he was so aware of his inability to speak that he didn't feel comfortable going to Pharaoh on God's behalf. So God said, okay, I'll give you your brother Aaron. Aaron will do the speaking for you. When you watch the movies, it's just Moses standing in there talking to Pharaoh. And he usually sounds like Charlton Heston. <laughs> and he's got great speech. And he's, let my people go, you know. Edward G. Robinson says, where's your Moses now? <laughs> the, the way that the Bible has been twisted to fit Hollywood feeds people the wrong story, the wrong impression. They get the idea that Moses was this mighty man. He, he was a man with a temper and, and a speech impediment. And Moses was given Aaron. While Moses is on the mountain, the man that God chose... This ill-tempered guy, this, this speech impediment guy, that's who God chose. And then gave him Aaron, and Aaron is the one who made a golden calf and told the children of Israel, that's your God. He's the God that took you out of Egypt. This is Aaron, who spoke for Moses. Moses. 
And yet, when God gave instructions to build the tabernacle in the wilderness (coughs) and how to build the holiest place, and he had to have a priest who would intercede between Israel and himself, he picked Aaron. Aaron, who made huge theological mistakes, who led people by the masses, he led them astray. And he said, that's your God. God in grace said, I'm going to make him my priest. I think God, this, you won't find this anywhere in the Bible. This is the gemmerized version. I, I think God said, I'll show him. I'll show him who I am. And I'll demand that he come before me and worship me. And I'll make him the intercessor, the type of Christ, the high priest who stands between me and my people. And this is Aaron who was just theologically inept at this point. And God was angry with Israel for their idolatry, but God chose Aaron. And that should be great news to any of us who have spent some portion of our life worshiping, in my case, the God of rock and roll. Or the God of Hollywood. Or the God of anything. You can make anything an idol. Sports star. You can make anything an idol. Your family. You can make anything an idol. My money. You can make anything your idol. And yet God saves people who make idols because he is, he's the sovereign God. He's the God that chooses. He is the God who elects. He is the God that Martin Luther was trying to describe out of the word of God. He is the God who does whatever he wants to do, and even you can't mess it up. And if you've ever tried to mess it up like I have, you're really happy that you can't mess it up because he's God and you're not. Got it? Say that again. My word will not go out and come back void. Absolutely. That's part of Isaiah, by the way. One of my favorite passages sits right there with, with that. My word will not come back void. God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. High as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts. My ways above your ways. That's God saying, I do what I want to do. And if you don't understand it, that's still the way I work. That's still the way I do things. And if I send my word, it's going to do what I send it to do. It's going to save Todd. And I know Todd. And Todd's a born rebel. And God tempered him and saved him. And Jennifer's really happy about it. I mean, every one of us, we can think back. We can tell our own story. We can think of our own wandering and our own rebellion. And I, for one, am really glad that God, I was going to say beat me into submission, but that makes him sound cruel. I'm glad that he wooed me into submission. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.